0: Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the editor here at PatientWorthy. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. And here at the start of February, a month that ends with Rare Disease Day, a global day of observance and action for the rare disease community around the world, the topic of how far treatment has come and how far it has yet to go is sure to be on the minds of many. That's the topic we're going to be discussing on the podcast today, and I'm happy to say that we're joined by a very special guest. Dr. Emil Kakis is a physician and scientist who has spent more than 30 years helping to advance research, treatment, and policy for rare disease patients. He is also the founder of both the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases and Ultragenics, a life sciences company dedicated to developing innovative treatments for rare and ultra-rare diseases. Dr. Kakis, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time. We're really excited to have you on. And by way of an introduction for our listeners, I'd like to go back to one of the early efforts in your career. You worked at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center in the effort to develop an enzyme replacement therapy for people living with MPS type 1, which is a lysosomal storage disorder. Can you talk about some of the challenges of that condition at the time and what drew you to that area of study?
1: Sure. I was at the time I'd was working on it, finishing an MD-PhD and starting pediatrics and medical genetics training. began working on this project to develop an enzyme replacement therapy, working with Dr. Elizabeth Neufeld. I was very successful getting the, this enzyme therapy made. What we do is we make the enzyme in the laboratory and give it back and turn out to a dog that had this disease. It worked really well. We thought, hey, this is a disease a treatment that could really work for this disease. So we sought people to try to work on this disease, and we found something very shocking even though we were sure this was going to work based on the science we had, there was no company out there that wanted to work on it. And instead of quitting the program, we we tried to proceed. And ultimately, a family, the Dant family, found us, and their child Ryan Dant had this MPS one disease, and he was still young. And they started to raise money for us and kept us afloat. So the first problem always is no one is interested, and no one will fund the kind of development work they started. Although It'd be very unusual for a family raising money to a scientist to actually develop a treatment like this. We proceeded anyways. I had a certain amount of naive optimism that maybe we could figure out how to get there, though it was hard. Well, when we started, we got going, and eventually the company did help us. And what we did at the time, though, is take an old World War II era bungalow at Harbor UCLA, and we decked it out inside as a clean room to produce the pharmaceutical grade enzyme and we made the enzyme there and we treated the first 10 patients and with relatively small amount of money and that's the challenge you can't get enough money but when we treated a few patients called we were starting infusions for the first time in 10 families 10 families who thought their kids were going to die for sure and you start an infusion and for a moment now the family's thinking maybe my child's not going to die from the time of diagnosis all they thought about now we had an opportunity Small sliver of hope, and then within weeks it was working. So finding enough money was great, but once we did, we were able to put together a plan to treat the first patients. And it was the most dramatic thing you can imagine: is developing something in your own lab, making it, and treating some kids and having them get better.
0: That's an amazing story. And since then, you know, there's been a lot of advancements in the field of research and treatments of rare condition. You know, in the decades of your career, there's a lot of factors that have gone into that. One of the driving factors behind your work, I know, has been the unmet need in rare and ultra-rare diseases. Can you expand on what that means and why it's been a motivating factor for you?
1: Well, in that story I just told about Ryan and saving him, I realized something, that I could do all the fancy basic research in the world and write papers, but translating the science to patients was what was powerful and meaningful, and it became my, my true purpose for my career that being in the room and treating kids for the first time was something I just wanted to repeat over and over again. And that allowed me to change my focus away from basic research to translational research and understanding that there's all this science that could be transformed into a treatment for a rare disease, but no one has done it. And so we could lead the vanguard in developing rare disease treatments one after another. But to do that, I realized I had to leave academia because there's just not enough money there. I joined Biomarin. I worked on ultimately three products approved in the first 10 years for three other diseases, and then four more products approved over time. So in my time, 11 years, we started or finished seven new treatments and came to Ultragenics and did another four approvals with six more in late stage. So the finding that no one was caring about rare allowed us to care and to pick up science and transform it and there's nothing better than that i can tell you as for a career
0: and that work, that tireless work of a lot of dedicated people in a relatively short amount of time, it sounds like, at least for how drug approvals commonly go, you know, we've seen a quite a few promising technologies, as you said, enter the rare disease field. It's just a matter of putting that to work. For instance, gene editing, the ability to change sections of DNA that underlie certain rare conditions. That's something that's had a lot of study go into it for cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, hemophilia, among other things. Can you talk about some of these advanced technologies that you mentioned and the promise they hold for rare disease treatment?
1: Well, we're very excited about what people call precision medicine now—new treatments that are designed specifically for certain patients. It can be gene editing, where we design a way to edit their genome and change what their genes are being expressed, so that they can correct a defect. It could also be providing a new copy of a gene that's broken in gene therapy. You've also can use pieces of Nucleic acid, the sequence that's in our coding, and use it like a biochemical scalpel to affect the expression, like we're doing in Angelman syndrome, where we make a short piece of DNA like stuff that goes into the brain and turns on certain genes in the brain very precisely. So, for the first time, we can use this advanced technology to actually turn on and alter the expression of very specific genes, which is a fantastic transformation from using small molecule drugs, which kind of have a general effect, let's say, on the brain versus ones where you can go right to the point that's needed, fixing the enzyme that's missing or turning on a gene that's not turned on and affecting the outcomes of disease in a very profound manner. So it is very exciting for sure.
0: You mentioned it earlier. I think many people are aware there's a ton of factors that go into the pace of developing treatments for diseases, time, money, rarity of the condition being obvious few that stand out. But you know, sort of looking at that time and money factor, looking at, for instance, how the COVID 19 vaccines were developed, for instance, or some of the wonderful and promising treatments for certain types of cancer that we see being studied and deployed now, there are ways to solve for some of those factors that kind of stand in the way of that progress. Can you tell us about some of the key factors that you feel are needed to advance therapies in the rare disease space and how to go about approaching them? Certainly. Well-
1: with rare diseases, there's a rarity, including in ultra, where there's so few patients, it's hard to run trials. And then they're very variable. So you have to design trials that allow you to capture efficacy and safety in a variable population. And then there's just a the lack of experience in knowing how these diseases change or how do they not change. These all create problems in how you design trials and how you get regulatory approval. And those changes require Novel trial designs like a blind start design, where we let each patient be their own control and cross them from placebo to drug, or using special endpoints where we look at multiple domains of a disease rather than just one single endpoint. Statistical approaches and other things can be designed to help enhance the ability to detect improvement in very small studies. And all of these things together can allow you to develop clinical development programs where you might treat only let's say, 30 to 40 people total, and be able to show the efficacy works. For our treatment for MepSevi, and enzyme therapy for MPS7, there were only 12 patients in the pivotal trial to prove efficacy. But Colby, there's only 20 patients on the treatment now Mm -hmm. in the United States, 20. So how do we develop a drug that only treats 20 people? Right. And that is what the challenge has been. But we were able to do it using these novel techniques and approaches. And that may be only 20, but for those 20, right, this can be a life-changing solution. Mm -hmm. And if we have the science code, we know what to do, how can we not find a way to make it happen, right?
0: Right. So another topic that is of great importance to you then in thinking about how we treat rare disease is measuring underlying disease as a better way to measure many metabolic disorders, for instance. Can you break down what that means for us?
1: Yes, I think it's very important to understand that we all think of, of a clinical disease as what happens to us clinically. Like we feel sick, we go to the hospital, that kind of thing. But in a lot of biochemical diseases, there's a beginning, a source of disease, a thing that's causing the problem. If you imagine, like you're probably familiar with anemia when your blood count's low and you may feel fatigued and tired. Well, you could measure the anemia or you could try to measure being fatigued and tired. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to measure your blood count right, than it is to measure being fatigued and tired. A similar analogy is true in the inborn errors of metabolism where you look at the metabolites, the thing that's built up when there's this problem in this patient and figure out what happens. The best analogy for this, Colby, is what I like to call the car crash analogy, the automotive of analogy. You know, if a car has broken brakes, the brakes are broken, then the risk of crashing goes up a lot, right? Having a crash, but whether you crash depends a little bit on who the driver is, what the traffic conditions, what kind of roads are you driving on, right? Mm-hmm. But right. you're pretty sure if your brakes are broken, your risk of crashing goes up. The think of brakes broken as a disease, right? And the crashing is the clinical outcome. Now, what we do today is we count crashes to figure out if a drug works. And mm-hmm. that might make sense. But the truth is, it's a way easier to measure the brakes that are broken. And then you treat the brakes, you fix them with the treatment, you can measure the fact that they're fixed a lot easier than car crashes, where the car crashes will be highly dependent on which patient, where they were, where they're driving, and so forth. So if you understand that, when I say looking at underlying disease, we're talking about measuring things in the blood or urine that are direct measures of the underlying disease, the broken breaks, the thing that's building up that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And we can measure that precisely And when we treat the underlying cause, when we fix like the missing enzyme or we replace what's missing, we know then when that goes down that we're treating the underlying cause. And we know that will translate into outcomes, car crashes. And we know car crashes matter, but by focusing on what's wrong, it allows you to develop treatments that fix what's wrong. If you focus on car crashes, you know what kind of drugs you make? You make big bumpers. You make seatbelts. You don't stop car crashes. You just mm-hmm. try to mitigate the harm of the car crash, right? Which is not fixing the problem, which is a lot of our symptomatic treatments that we get approved, right? That don't fix anything. They just kind of try to make you better. Mm-hmm. In the inborn areas we have a chance to fix the problem and that's why these biomarkers which are measures of the broken breaks are a far more effective and efficient way to test drugs that treat the underlying cause of a disease
0: i see and that's a great analogy thank you and i can understand why that kind of efficiency and focusing on what you can measure would be very important in developing new treatments so you spoke earlier about Ryan dant this was a person you met early in your career In 2021, you published a book called Saving Ryan, the 30-Year Journey into Saving the Life of a Child. And that's the story. It's a multi-layered story about Ryan, who is living with MPS. His father, Mark, mentioned a tireless champion and fundraiser for his son. And you, a researcher who was at the time working on an enzyme replacement therapy for Ryan's condition. In many ways, this story, I think, underlines some of the key challenges faced by people living with rare conditions and the people working to develop treatments. Can you expand for us on Ryan's story and what it means for you?
1: Well, Ryan was my first connection to an MPS1 patient who was life was in front of them, but they were declining. And he was a, turned out to be a very inspirational, very cute kid which Mm -hmm. is always helpful. His father was a police officer, certainly not a scientist at all, but his father had the drive and the charisma to get people to help him and raise money. But Ryan was the person that brought to me so clearly in focus what rare disease was. Rare disease was a little kid with all this future ahead of them being yanked away by what I call genetic lightning, a random shot of the world on him that says... Your genetics are not right. You're not gonna make it. The story talks about the family trying to raise money to help us, but it also is about Dr. Newfeld, who was my mentor, and her 30 years trying to figure out what's wrong with these kids. And she developed all the science at a time when no one cared about these diseases and cloned the gene, the thing that helps describe how to make the enzyme, the instructions on how to make it. And so the book goes through the stories of Ryan and their family. Stories of Liz Neufeld and the science, and my own interweave together in a long struggle to develop a treatment when there was very little support for it, to manage to get through, save lives, then run into FDA regulatory issues, and end up taking more years and more challenges to ultimately get to an FDA advisory committee meeting, like a big courtroom scene Mm -hmm. where the data get presented and the FDA is debating it with some experts. And we run that courtroom scene. We got a vote of 12-0 that the drug was working, and the drug got approved. And I talked then a little bit about what's happened since that time. Ryan has grown up. He finished, graduated high school, got his driver's license, went to college, and in 2022, got engaged and got married. Mm -hmm. He's been since 1998 on treatment, so that's 25. I'm going on 26 years in February that he's been on treatment. So- a truly life changed, and it was trying to put that story down for everyone who's out there, who may have a rare disease family member or a friend or their own child, to realize you can do impossible things, battling and struggling, and that there are ways you can find a treatment and save your kid.
0: Just an amazing story and an important one to tell. So, Mark Dant, Ryan's father, he wrote the Ford to your book, and. In it, he describes being told after his son's diagnosis that there was simply no hope for his son. Like you said, a genetic lightning strike. Nobody's fault. It's just the way genetics were. But with that, all of the things that a parent would typically and rightfully wish for their child, those dreams that any parent has of what their child's future could be, those were just snuffed out or so he felt at the time. What would you say to someone who is feeling like Mark right now, that their situation for themselves or for their child seems hopeless?
1: Well, at the time you get diagnosed, you're in shock and you're spinning around like Mark was. And at some point, when you come out of that dark place, you start asking, now what? What do I do? And I get many calls every week from families who are in that mode. They've just discovered something and now they're trying to take action. Because Mark's story has been out there and published, there's now a lot more recognition, maybe there is something you could do. And what I try to tell them is, it is possible, but it's hard. And writing the book was to say to them, it can be done, but be prepared. Don't think it's easy. It will be hard. But there have been other families who have similarly taken on the challenge and within a few years managed to get the science put together and got their kids treated. And so I tell them there's a way forward. But the key thing. Colby, most families try to figure out all the way to the end. From now to the end, how do I get there? It's too much to have in your head. So I try to get families oriented around, let's do the next step. What's the first step? The first step is find a young scientist who's really capable, who has been trained well, who you can support to do some basic science for your disease if there isn't any around. And start that. Make an animal model. Get someone to help you and start the process. And you start walking down the process. And step by step, you work the next step and work the next step. I've had several families take that walk and actually get their kids treated after Mark. But it is not easy and -hmm. it's not a sure thing. But I also would say to everyone, no matter what, as a parent, you know you have to do this. And in some cases, the parents may not save their own kid, but they might save someone else's kid Mm -hmm. because it might be too late for their kid. But whatever it is, It is an expression of love to put everything you have into trying to find a way. Whether it's your kid or someone else's kid, there is an important transformative value in recognizing how important life is and how much you love your kid and you want to do everything for them. And that expression comes in the form of trying to find a way to save them. And so I think families have to do it. And I try to find a way to help them find that path if they can. Hmm.
0: So let's talk a few steps into this process then. One factor that is frustrating for many people, patients, families, and researchers alike is actually getting access to treatments once they have been developed. Sometimes that's a geographical factor, no specialty centers in your state. And many times this is an economic factor. We just spoke with a young woman on one of our previous episodes whose life-saving treatment is one of the most expensive medications in the world can you talk about access to treatment, some of the barriers that are in place and how we should address those?
1: It's certainly a potential problem, particularly in the US system where the insurance system has a lot of holes in it, or there may be mechanisms which make it financially harder on families like coinsurance, where you have to pay 20% of a drug right without any stop loss, or Medicaid programs, which may not fully cover things. The truth is that the companies. Commercializing these programs have a responsibility to assure that they're getting access. And certainly, as ultragenics, we set the standard that no one in the U.S should not be getting access for financial reasons, in which case what we do is we cover commercial coinsurance or copays ourselves. We cover those. We'll also provide free drug, like when they start and they can't get their insurance approved, or if in the end their insurance never does approve, we will give people free drug. And it's part of our responsibility in commercializing a rare disease drug that's expensive, very expensive, to know that some people may not and may not have the right system. So the way we price and do this is to assure that we can get the drug to everyone. That is really what every company should be doing. Many companies do have these support programs, but it involves also not just creating an access system, but I don't think patients should be going broke trying to afford their medicines, right? They shouldn't have that happen to them, So. We try to cover, as I said, copies and other things to make it possible and also find ways to get therapy delivered to home. Like The majority of our patients actually get their injections or stuff at home. That's great. So they don't have to go to the hospital all the time, which is, becomes another access issue, right? Because mm-hmm. family have to take a day off work, which they can't afford, right? <laughs> to go to the clinic, transport and rest of it, get the treatment, come back home. So we, we try to do what we have to do. I think most rare companies have access programs to support. And I think it's the responsibility of the companies are doing the commercialization to make sure that there's no holes. At the same time, we need to make sure that the laws and the insurance system provides the safety net as well, and that all of us together should be making sure that's not happening. Mm -hmm. I hope the person you mentioned did get access to her treatment. I imagine it must've been a gene therapy for something.
0: Yes, yeah, (laughs) you're right. Let's talk about that last part then. You know, changing the laws... You know, speaking to them, letting legislators know where they can help and access. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Rare Disease Day is coming up at the end of the month. It's a day of you know observance. It's a global day. But also here in the United States, it's a day for people to meet their legislators to talk about these issues. It's always at the end of February, the 29th this year, a leap year. You're somebody who's worked in many areas of the rare community. You've been a researcher, founder of an advocacy organization, as the founder of a life sciences company. It's been 15 years now since Rare Disease Day became a global rallying point for rare patients and their families. What words do you have to mark the occasion?
1: Well, I think one thing that becomes very clear if you're in the rare disease space is that it's not just a US problem or a Canada problem. It's a global problem. And that all rare disease patients, no matter what their origins, are part of one nation. So I call rare as one nation. We're all of one nation when you share a rare disease. And while we seem to be spending too much money on war, we should be spending money on treating the patients of this rare nation and spending our money developing ways to treat them. But we are together globally in this commonality. And no matter what our culture, our religion, our background, our politics... We share this commonality of a disease that affects us and dramatically changes our future. And Rare Disease Day is an opportunity to share in one rare nation.
0: I agree. And are you going to be at Rare Disease Day this year?
1: I'm not in D.C. that time. I will be somewhere else. But I celebrate Rare Disease Day always. I was certainly part of the Every Life team that set up the Rare Disease Week in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., where we bring hundreds of advocates on the Hill and we send them out like an army on the hill to go after Congress and tell them our stories. And everyone needs to tell their stories everywhere to to gain the strength of numbers of one rare nation, which is that there are many of us, even if individually these diseases are rare, together we are many.
0: Great sentiment. Good way to put it. And we've had members of Every Life on previously to preview Rare Disease Week for us. So we're looking forward to meeting them again there this year. Well, Dr. Kakas, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to appear on our show today. Thank you for the time and care and devotion that you've shown to the rare disease community over the years as well. Thank you for having me and happy to do so. Right. Well, if you'd like to pick up a copy of Dr. Kakas' book, Saving Ryan, The 30-Year Journey into Saving the Life of a Child, we'll leave a link in the show notes for you to check out. We'll also leave links to where you can find out more information about Rare Disease Day. Rare Disease Week and the Every Life Foundation as well. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting our website at patientworthy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for PatientWorthy on those platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It may seem like a small thing, but a review or rating really does go a long way toward helping us out. Finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to Colby at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Dr. Emil Kakas for joining me on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening.